Are you like millions across the country concerned about blood pressure, heart health, or energy levels? Meet Berkeley Life, a once-a-day supplement that supports healthy circulation and may help maintain a healthy heart. Berkeley Life is scientifically developed to boost nitric oxide, a signaling molecule your body naturally produces that helps maintain a healthy cardiovascular system. Berkeley Life is a 100% drug-free supplement without the nasty side effects of prescription drugs. It's one of my personal solutions to maintain cardiovascular health and vitality throughout the day. Berkeley Life also has a test strip that allows you to track your nitric oxide production as you supplement. If you're worried about blood pressure, now is the time to try Berkeley Life. Head to agewellbl.com Hoffman and use offer code Hoffman at checkout for 10% off your first order and free shipping. That's agewellbl.com slash Hoffman for Berkeley Life Nitric Oxide Support Supplements. agewellbl.com slash Hoffman. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. I think a very uh, topical Intelligent Medicine Podcast because, uh, well, we're in the wake of uh, a pronouncement by eminent nutritionists and scientists uh, who put together something called the Eat Lancet Report. And the report calls for drastic reductions in our consumption of meat, both to improve human health, but also to save the planet from environmental devastation. Uh, today, we're going to talk to, um, actually, she's a familiar guest because we've talked to her in the past about her books. Uh, she's Nicolette Hahn Nyman. She's author of Defending Beef. Uh, previous to that, uh, she also wrote a book called The Righteous Pork Chop. She's a rancher, environmental attorney, and writer. And full disclosure here, she is married to Bill Nyman of Nyman Ranch, uh, which makes uh, some very, very high-quality meat products. Uh, by the way, Nicoletta, I have some of your husband's uh, hariso in the fridge. Uh, I'm, uh, anxious. <laughs> Great. <laughs> it's, one, it's one of my perennial favorites because it's uh, clean and natural. Um, so, uh, Nicolette, you know, let's uh, let's take a look at this uh, Eat and Lancet report because just if I, if I can sum it up, what they're saying here is that the earth cannot sustain uh, meat production. We have a rapidly expanding population. Uh, meat production is causing environmental devastation worldwide. It's contributing to global warming. And oh, by the way, it's not so good for us to be eating meat because meat's unhealthy. It's bad for you. And we should really be concentrating on a, quote, plant-based diet with minimal amounts of meat. And the, and the program that they lay out uh, really has very, very scanty amounts of uh, animal protein. And there's been a big blowback uh, on this subject, uh, including uh, from you. So what say you, yes. Nicolette? Yeah. Well, I think that's a great summary of the report. And there certainly is this idea kind of out there, you know, in the zeitgeist right now that, that, that this is this is the way things should be heading. And I mean, from the environmental side of it, I would say we can't sustain not having the animals in the food system. Um, I've been working on this issue as an environmental activist and starting as an environmental lawyer on this question for about 20 years now. And the more I've learned, the more I've come to appreciate the absolutely essential role that animals play 
in ecologically optimal food systems. So if you were to just wave a magic wand and take all the animals out of the food system, I think it would be the first step towards environmental collapse. Um, it's not desirable, and it is certainly not the direction you know that we should be heading in. And you yourself were once a vegetarian, even a, a vegan, and uh, no, uh, no, no, never a no, vegan, <laughs> never quite a vegan, but a vegetarian, <laughs> not. mostly eating, yes. you, know, you know, some alternative forms of, uh, uh, you know, perhaps dairy and uh, and eggs, but not a lot of meat. Uh, you since modified your dietary regimen, but uh, you know, have you noticed vegans have a certain amount of uh, moral fervor? You know, sometimes you're called upon to. Uh, uh, have lively discussions with vegetarians, uh, to put it mildly, uh, in debate format. And uh, the hate and vituperation that they sometimes put on you is way over the top. Yeah, well, I've been the subject of a lot of um, truly, uh, you know, Internet trolling. It, that's the minor part of it. Um, but I've done I've done I've been invited repeatedly to do live debates. I've done I did an hour long debate against a prominent animal rights activist on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation radio and on a national broadcast that they did and did a live debate here in uh, in the Bay Area in Berkeley to a sold-out audience at the David Brower Center. And um, I've done this quite often because I've been asked and I have actually turned down a number of invitations because I don't think it's the most constructive um format actually but what i have found is the um the vitriol is is astonishing um if you there the thing that um you know i think a case can be made for a healthy vegan diet i don't think it's an optimal human diet but i think a case can be made for it but what's really um troubling about so much of the vegan advocacy is it takes almost a sort of a religious or cult like kind of fervor to it and if you dare <laughs> to question it, you know, you are the worst kind of, you know, you're committing the worst kind of blasphemy. And people who have, period, you know, have been vegan for a while and then have stopped being vegan and have explained why they're not doing it anymore have been subjected to kind of some of the most fervent hatred. And because I've, I've been a vegetarian for a very, very long time, um, it's sort of, I'm sort of in that same camp from the perspective of a lot of vegan and animal rights activists in that I quote unquote, you know, I'm kind of a traitor and should never be speaking Mm -hmm. positively about, you know, animal based food. So yeah, I've been on a lot of the receiving end of that. And to me, it reveals, um, there's a, there is a kind of irrationality to a lot of this. And unfortunately, um, that has actually, that's part of what fueled this report. Um, it was actually um, the whole initiative, this Eat Lancet report, um, was was largely funded by a vegan couple, Euro- European-based vegan couple mm-hmm. that have, you know, millions of dollars, and uh, you know there there were some sort of amusing articles that were written about them after this report came out. Showing them, um, you know, their Instagram feed shows them vacationing all over the world and posting pictures of themselves meditating and so forth. And they're with a pretty high carbon footprint, you know, with they're the, the, jet, exactly. Yeah. They're jet setting all over the world and telling the, you know, the ordinary person that they should be eating, you know, about a, you know, a uh, strawberry sized piece of red meat per day and no more, <laughs> you know, right. actually preferably none. Um, so it, 
there is some very strange underpinnings to this whole, um, you know, this report specifically, but this whole um, public question and the way it's being talked about. And one of the frustrations I have as someone who's worked very specifically on the, you know, sustainable meat question for, for two decades now is that we're so much of it just misses the point about what, what does truly sustainable regenerative agriculture actually look like? And isn't that what we should be trying to move toward? And there's this beautiful, you know, harmony between that kind of agriculture and the food that it produces and healthy diets. But that's not where so much of this public conversation is. So much mm-hmm. of it is just about, um, you know, meat is bad, plant is good. <laughs> so let's cut out the meat. And then, and not, and really just talking about it in the most simplistic and just really actually almost nonsensical way. Well, it seems to me that they're conflating two issues. And really, there are two propositions here. And we're going to examine them momentarily. But one proposition, and Really, it's it's a debatable proposition. Uh, is that animal protein is the cause of many of the generative diseases that we experience in the West? That it causes heart disease, that it increases the risk of cancer and inflammatory disorders, and so on. That is a that's debatable science. Uh, but what they're saying essentially is, well, you know, whether or not we have this right, uh, there still is a moral imperative to undertake. Uh, low animal protein diets because there's an environmental concern. And that too, you know, according to what you, you just introduced to us is a debatable proposition is that, okay, let's say we eradicate, uh, animal husbandry, uh, and we go to, uh, feed the population of the world with the vegetarian foods. Will it really, um, prevent the ravages to our environment? Will it slow global warming, climate change? Really, those are two propositions that we're conflating, right? Yeah, I think you make an excellent point. It's almost as though there's a growing recognition among the sort of anti-meat and, you know, anti-animal you know animal fat um, sort of contingent out there. There's a growing recognition that there's a big, there's, there are more and more holes in their case. And so it's as though the environmental argument is being introduced mm-hmm. as a way to sort of supplement yep. it and say, well, yep. even if it's not really, the science isn't really that solid on the health side, we've got the environmental argument. So we should right. still head in this direction. But the truth is, you know, um, I had a, a, the great honor um, just uh, a few weeks ago of chairing a panel of three really, um, in my view, sort of leading voices in regenerative agriculture at a ecological farming conference in Kentucky and um, just a few weeks ago. And um, there was a great deal of discussion on that panel among the three people that were, that were all um, that had all written recent books about this. One of them is the farmer, Gabe Brown, who's based in North Dakota. And he in particular is so articulate about the essential nature of animals in that truly regenerative mm-hmm. agriculture. And he has, he has an amazing journey that he documents in his book called um, Dirt to Soil. And it's all about how he kind of took over this um, uh, farm that had been in his wife's family, actually, and just had been conventionally farmed. So sort of growing the plants that a lot of, you know, these advocates are telling us we should all be eating more of that are, you know, like soy and corn and wheat. And it, the, basically the soil 
had become dead. And there was little to no life in this whole area um, where the farming was taking place because conventional crop production is one of the worst ecological, you know, things you can do with land because not only does it cause soil erosion and it's devastating to wildlife and it causes a lot of water pollution, but the bottom line is that you essentially kill the life of the soil that um, micro, microscopic life, the microorganisms, mm-hmm. as well as all the insects and, you know, the smaller creatures that are not necessarily microscopic, but all of the little, um, you know, earthworms and um, dung beetles and all the other things that are in the soil that make it a teeming, vibrant um, micro ecosystem. And um, <clears throat> what Gabe Brown, it talks about and shows in his book is that when he began reintroducing diversity to the the farm and especially began reintroducing animals, that's when the life really returned to the soil. And then the food they were producing began to hold a great deal more cor- carbon in it. It began to hold more water in the soil. It began to produce a great deal more diversity in the vegetation that was coming from it. And he actually found that the more animals that he introduced on his farm, the more success he was having in terms of being a truly regenerative farmer and really bringing life back to this um, plot of land that he was um, farming. So, and this has been a 30-year journey that he documents in his book. But this is this is the kind of uh, discussion that is really exciting to me that's taking place in agriculture and this idea that you can really farm in a way that you're not just sustaining whatever environmental conditions exist there, but you can actually regenerate this. But I have not, and I've been networking with and reading the books from and speaking with people around the world that are working on this idea of regenerative agriculture, and not one of them believes you need to get rid of animals. In fact, most of them think more animals are needed. So it to me, the frustration I have with this kind of Eat Lancet report and the like is that I think it's a, it's a huge distraction from, you know, really educating people and having a, a, a sort of a robust discussion about what we really need to do to move the food system in the right direction from an environmental standpoint. As a listener to Intelligent Medicine, you know that fish oil provides the vital omega-3s, EPA, and DHA that support your cardiovascular, brain, nerve, vision, immune system, joint, and skin health, as well as your inflammatory balance. My preferred fish oil brand is Vital Nutrients, offering a line of 11 ultra-pure omega-3 solutions, including soft gels, liquid, and enteric-coated options in a variety of potencies. Vital Nutrients even offers a high-performance and nutrient-dense vegan omega supplement option. Vital Nutrients' line of ultra-pure omega-3 solutions are held to the most rigorous quality standards in the industry, ensuring maximum freshness, purity, and potency. I use Vital Nutrients myself and recommend it to my patients. For more information and to order, call 888-328-9992. That's 888-328-9992. Or go to vitalnutrients.co. That's vitalnutrients.co for the Vital Nutrients line of Ultra Pure Omega-3 Solutions. 
Well, Nicolette, you know, one of the interesting things about uh, this debate is that the term cow fart has been introduced into polite conversation. And it's part of the debate Mm -hmm. because they believe that animal erectations or flatulence uh, contribute to the methane accumulation that will uh, uh, create a greenhouse effect and ultimately the planet will warm up. And if we could just simply, you know, grow uh, plants with photosynthesize and don't uh, emit methane gases uh, will be okay. I mean, so how real is that argument? Can we dispel that concern? Yeah, well, again, it, there's always a seed of truth in all of these ideas, but it's just a massive oversimplification. So cattle do in their in their digestive process, you know, they have these actually miraculous digestive systems. Mm-hmm. They like have five a stomachs, you know. Digestive. Yes, they have this multiple chamber um, digestive system, which allows them, because it has this sort of long process, and it's all done in conjunction with a, a huge population of microorganisms that inhabit their digestive chambers, and it, it enables the animal to actually turn cellulosic vegetation, basically grass, which is inedible to most animals and to humans. And they are able to turn it into nutritious food, which powers their bodies. And then their bodies by humans are used for meat and milk. And this this very simple and but complex um, process that they do is quite unique in, in nature. The ruminant is you know, it has this unique ecological niche that it fills. And the vast majority of the wild ruminants, you know, which there were once, you know, many, many millions of them on the globe, though they have unfortunately mostly been eradicated by humans or mm-hmm. have disappeared because of the, you know, the change in climate that's taken place over millions of years. And so what we have today is we have the domesticated ruminants as really the only major ruminant populations on the globe. And they are able to inhabit these areas of the earth that cannot be, um, cannot or should not be farmed, uh, because ecologically it's really not a place that can sustain farming. And so the vast majority of the grazing that takes place on the earth is in these open, grassy areas, often cool and windy, and places where you really can't grow crops. And, the animal, the cattle take that, uh, low energy vegetation and turn it through their digestive system into, uh, into nutritious food. Now, in that process of doing that, uh, if the grass, if any plant matter decomposes, there's a certain amount of methane that is emitted. Mm-hmm. And that's why, like swamp you know, gas. Swamp, yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Swamps and, you know, peat bogs and everything are known to be very high emitters of methane. It's because of that digestive process that's happening as well, you know, through the microorganisms that are breaking it down. The same thing is happening in the cattle digestive system. And basically, you're having an emission. It's actually mostly through the burps, <laughs> not as much yeah, through the Yeah, right. I, I correct people because it, cow farts just sounds, yeah. know, it's, it's more, I don't know, it gets your attention. But it's actually, they cow they erectate, they belch. It's really exciting. <laughs> right, they belch. It's, yeah, it's but more it's cow belches. Through the, right, through, yeah. the, um, through the emissions through the mouth. Yeah. But they are part of these lar- much larger ecosystems that, some scientists actually argue that there should be no, in fact, I just read an analysis by a, a Latin American 
scientist who's looked at this issue extensively and who argued that really no emissions of that type, it doesn't even make any sense to include them in the international inventory because there's a completely different life cycle that happens with those emissions in natural systems because essentially they are, everything is recycles itself through the system. And there's, uh, for example, one one of the elements of that is the um, is again the the microorganisms that inhabit the soil. There are in in environments where you have methane emitted, uh, there is also a higher population of microorganisms that actually consume methane. These are called methanotrophs. They mm-hmm. love methane, so they actually consume it. And there's research in Australia that has shown that there's as much consumed by those microorganisms as there is emitted by the cattle. But there's a lot, there are lots of different lines of research and thinking that are taking place on this. But there's a pretty strong consensus among the people that are looking at the ecosystem functions that you really shouldn't treat the cattle emissions at all in the same way that you treat fossil fuel emissions. You're actually taking stored carbon from deep under the ground and pulling it up and refining it and then you're you know burning it in an airplane or in a car and then you're adding it to the atmosphere so you're actually taking stored carbon from one place and putting it into another place when when you have cattle there you know there's this issue of the the microorganisms i just mentioned but also there's just this whole cycling system that happens and there's a great deal more carbon storage there's there's some really good research out of michigan state that was completed last year that they did a number of years of field testing and actually showed that there was so much more carbon stored in the soil in the places where you had well-managed grazing than places where you didn't have any grazing it's like a carbon that bank. actually more yeah. than pardon me it's like a carbon bank of sorts. yeah and you had you actually more than fully offset all mm-hmm. of the global gas emissions from the animals. Nicolette, I've, so I've heard it said that, really, the, that even if they, even if this is consequential, it doesn't amount to more than 9% of the global warming gases that are produced because most is produced through transportation and through energy production. Uh, and say like we completely, uh, you know, cease uh, animal production. Uh, okay. That would take 9% of the global warming gases out of the environment at best. And so is this really, uh, are the the potential costs to our economy and to our health of eradicating uh, animal uh, consumption uh, is it merited in, in terms of a speculative benefit? Uh, you know, taking down um, these uh, these global warming gases by a relatively inconsequential amount. Well, and in the United States, it's even far less because. We have as a total percentage in the United States, you know, we have a bigger personal footprint in the United States because we drive our cars a lot. We have a lot of, you know, buildings with air conditioners, et cetera. And so in the U.S., all of the domesticated ruminants together, so this includes, you know, all the cattle, all the goats, all the sheep, all the bison that are being raised for human purposes, all together, that's estimated by the Environmental Protection Agency to equal about 2 to 3% nice. of our glo- global warming gases in the United States. So for the U.S., 
if you are talking to an American consumer and telling them to cut their beef consumption in order to impact global warming, that's almost kind of an absurd piece of advice because yeah. it, it really has almost nothing to do with what an American is doing that will have an impact on global warming emissions. You're much better off to ride your bike more. You know, that that's going to have a much bigger impact. Absolutely. And we're not against that. I'm Dr. Ronald Huff, and today we're with Nicolette uh, Hahn-Nyman. She's author of Defending Beef, and we're talking about uh, the recent Eat Lancet report, which calls for drastic curtailment of our animal protein uh, production and consumption to improve our health and to save the environment. Uh, Clearly, there's some problems with that reasoning, and we're going to discover more about uh, some of the uh, issues related to this in part two. Be right back.